Russian coup, dystopia in feministlandia, and the Trump-O-Rama rages on with Dr. Alan Sabrosky and Kat McGuire right here, right now on VT Radio. Let's go. With host Johnny Punish. Dr. Alan Sabrosky and Kat McGuire. Fantastic to have you both back on VT Radio. Today we're going to discuss three really important topics. We're going to discuss the Trump issue with Merrick Garland and the travesty of justice. We're going to discuss the feminine dystopia article that Dr. Alan Sabrosky wrote last week. And of course, we're going to discuss right now the Wagner Group coup in Russia. Uh, Alan, start with you. Give us the background on what's happening uh, in Russia right now with Wagner. Well, one of the one of the very interesting things about this is that uh, we saw with the Wagner Group, however it's pronounced in Russia, um, the resurgence of what was uh, commonplace in the 1960s, and that was mercenaries in Africa. Africa was decolonizing. There were a variety of mercenaries, uh, some British, some French, some Belgian. These are the three principal peoples who organized it. Uh, mostly former soldiers, a lot of veterans in them, who acted on behalf of one side or the other in the competing parties fighting for control of, of various colonies. And the, the one in the Belgian Congo was probably the, the most notable one. Uh, there was a variety of mercenary groups there. And they had, they had two characteristics. One is that they were better trained and better disciplined and tougher than any of the local armies, any of the local African armies. They were probably would have been better trained than any and, and better fighters than any of the European armies within the level of weaponry they had, which was light infantry. They were just light infantry. These weren't heavily armored units, didn't have armor, artillery. They were light infantry and they used themselves as light infantry, but they were extremely good. And the second is that to an unusual extent for mercenaries, they were loyal to their paymasters. You know, mercenaries had a really bad reputation in Renaissance Italy in particular, although Cat as a half Sicilian might just want to disagree with this. I don't know what the reputation of Sicilian mercenaries was. Uh, I do recall a, a British officer who served with an, Michael Hoare, H-O-A-R-E, I think I can't know, don't know if that's the correct pronunciation of his name. And he described various UN peacekeeping forces who were in there. And the UN got scraps of peacekeeping forces to try and maintain order. And they basically got the leftovers of every country's armies. And he had different, he had comments on, on different ones. He said the Indians were very good. Uh, they mostly spent, sent Nepalese Gurkhas. And the Gurkhas would basically kick ass and take names of just about anyone who was around. Uh, the Irish, he said, were drunk and great cowards. Sorry, Cap, that's the other half of yours. Uh, but they really were. I mean, that's, a, that's this was a British lieutenant colonel. He had been a lieutenant colonel in the British Army before he became, I think, a captain in, in the this one mercenary group in, in the Belgian Congo. And he said, but you have to understand that the, the countries, when they were asked to send mercenaries, never sent their best troops. They sent the ones they could spare. Except in the case of the Gurkhas, the Indians wanted to make an impression, and boy, did they make an impression on everyone around. Uh, but other than that, he said, you know, the mercenaries were unusually loyal to their paymasters. 
and con- which contrary to the history of mercenaries, you know, you offer me a better deal, I'll change sides and go and fight. Now, the Wagner group, until the Wagner group came around, we had had some experience with mercenaries, you know, in Iraq, American mercenaries. Um, and their reputation was being better paid, better armed, and more ruthless than American troops, than regular American troops. And it's interesting that when we counted casualties, American casualties in Iraq and in Afghanistan, we didn't count mercenary losses. So I have no idea what they were. I, I have I don't know if anyone does. It's clandestine. Um, it's not not supposed to be known, right? Pardon me. It's clandestine. It's not supposed to be known. Well, it's not. It wasn't. I mean, they were very open about what they were doing, but the the casualties they caused. And the pay they received, what the total cost was, has never been revealed to the best of my knowledge. I mean, the, I saw one reference, and this was around 2004, 2005, and I'm, I'm blanking out. It was the one, what was that first mercenary, cab? what was the first mercenary company in, in Iraq? John, it, it? black something. Black Blackwater? Water. Black, Blackwater. Blackwater. The, a soldier, a common soldier, quote unquote, in, in Blackwater, got $1,000 a day cash, tax-free. Now compare that, now you, you compare that to what a private soldier in, in the U.S. military was getting for doing the same thing. You know, mercenaries are expensive. Uh, on the other hand, if you didn't have to account for their casualties, you didn't have to explain to Congress and the public back home why, why Johnny got his head blown off for reasons that really don't bear close examination. And with mercenaries, you don't have to do that. And that's the advantage to mercenaries, the political advantage to mercy. Now, Wagner, now, Wagner, now this gets us, okay, this gets us to the Wagner group. They were a private military company, a Russian, as far as I can tell, it was all Russian military company, a mercenary group responsible to their paymaster, which was the Russian government, and probably used for the same reason that we use mercenaries in Iraq. You don't have to account for their casualties. I don't know what they were paid. I don't know who their paymaster was. I assume it was Putin or the Russian treasury, but you don't have to account for that. There, there was a major dispute, which was really below the radar. And I only heard about it indirectly several weeks ago. And then it wasn't, didn't seem to be, be really significant. It obviously turned out to be significant, or at least in one respect. And that there, that there was an ongoing argument from a few weeks after this special military operation began, you know, a year ago, March, between the commander of the Wagner group and the minister of defense, that the Wagner group thought that the Minister of Defense basically had made a hash of things. Or as someone wrote in response to one of my comments on VK, uh, they tried to do what the Wehrmacht did, but they weren't the Wehrmacht. And it was that simple. And the Wagner group basically said, essentially said, you needed better people to pull it off. And you need, or you needed a different plan or both. 
And the Russian Minister of Defense, not surprisingly, dug in his heels and objected. And I don't know how deep this this personal conflict went and how deep it was a professional conflict or a professional dispute. I really don't know. I have no way of knowing. I don't have any sources in there. Can't say. But it apparently reached a point, and this is where there's a fork in the road in the analysis. Either a coup was attempted, which I don't believe, because they they were on Rostov-on-Don, which is 1,200 kilometers from Moscow. This isn't a place to start a coup. You know, you really don't. Um, or it was a Moskarovka. It was a, a, a fake rising, which allowed Putin to end up at the end of the day showing that he was strong, in control, and merciful because he didn't kill the, the leadership of the Wagner group. They're sitting now in Belarus, although if I were in Belarus, I would not be sleeping <laughs> quietly at night, I tell you. Uh, Lukashenko has his own way of dealing with these things, and that may be part of the deal. I have no idea. But the whole thing just struck me as odd. I, I will pass on one thing to you. Um, I exchanged messages over the weekend before the commander of the Wagner Group and a few of his people headed off to Belarus. And I asked him, he's, he's uh, an American married to a Russian and they're living in Yalta, in the Crimea. And I said, you know, the thing that struck me about this, where is the Russian Air Force? I mean, the Wagner Group is infantry. It's, it's, not, it's not infantry, it's ground troops. Infantry, armor, artillery, but it's ground troops. No Air Force. Where is the Russian Air Force? I mean, if there's a coup taking place, you know, you got one side with no tactical aircraft and the other side with MiGs and Sukhois up there, and it's pretty clear to see what's going to happen. And he said, the Russian Air Force has been staying out of these battles in the Ukraine, in northeastern Ukraine, pretty much for the last several weeks. Very low profile, few aircraft, but a low profile. And then a couple of hours later, he said, and this was on Sunday morning, Lots of planes flying overhead, heading toward Rostov. Lots of planes. Now, they never did anything as far as I know, but that they were moving to bases close to there obviously indicated that they were prepositioning for something. What that something was, I don't know. I have a question about the MSN. Cat McGuire, can you explain to me uh, the MSN? Because it sounds to me like they're Baghdad Bob right now. They're reporting that the Ukrainians are winning, the Wagner group's winning, it's a coup d'etat, blah, 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 blah. I I'm very confused about how the United States MSN, mainstream media, is reporting this. Can you speak to that, Cat? Yes. Um, they thought they were wallowing in their best wet dream ever, when in reality, they had a, a total 180 degree view of what was going on, which is uh, correlates uh, almost precisely with their lies that they've been telling the public that Ukraine is winning, Zelensky's doing a great job. All those are outright lies. Putin could take NATO and Ukraine out with one hand behind his back. I mean, he, he has the military strength. That's why he can be so measured and in control. But the beltway is just 
looking for anything. Um, and it was, it, it was what they wanted to see it as. This is our chance. You know, they're totally losing. So they're very excited that there might even actually be a civil war and Putin gets taken out. Yes. He's going to, they're going to take him out any minute now, which was absolutely ridiculous. And, and part of the extreme attention to, um, this, fake, uh, don't blink or you'll miss the supposed coup d'etat is to, um, distract from all their troubles, uh, specifically starting with Hunter Biden and, um, Merrick Garland, which we'll talk about later. Um, but in terms of, uh, Prigozhin, um, he, 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 he did a really good job. His men won Bakhmut. That was a, a epic, military battle and they did well. Now, granted, many of them are outright prisoners. I, I think um, Prigozhin was even a prisoner and I read somewhere he was uh, half Jewish. I'm not totally sure about that, but um, he, I'm sure there's some kind of a uh, male thing going on between him and the bureaucratic military men, uh, two in particular. So um, he did want to call their bluff, but he had reason to be upset because he asked for more weapons, which he needed, and a lot of his men got taken out. And he's he, he's a, um, a free agent. They do what they want. They don't abide by the rules. And yet Russia has to abide by their rules, even so far as, well, they can't go into uh, Donetsk because that is now Russian. And our constitutional laws say they can. It's like, since when were Russians following constitutional law? Oh, I forgot. They're more democratic than we are. We're the Soviets now who don't follow anything. And the Russians have become really true um, democratic people who follow their constitution. But back to um, Prigozhin, um, he was in a pickle. He was in a bind um, because he 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 basically pulled a bluff on the military bureaucracy. There was wasn't much he could do when he got there. What was he going to do? Take over? use some tanks to take over people. There was nobody he could call and say, okay, you over there and you get over there. He had no power. It was just, he had kind of, he does not have any institutional power. And that became very clear. And um, Putin, who has always exercised extreme measure and um, even level-headedness, um, as we saw with Syria and Egypt when um, Israelis um, shot down um, his planes. Um, he didn't just react and, and start World War III around things like that. He He's a, an extremely good leader. I have the highest respect for Vladimir Putin. He's not in Putin. He's not an angel. But um, uh, compared to the leadership we're seeing in the West right now, he's like top 10. And so, and, and then who comes in um, from the, from left field? My gosh, uh, Lukashenko. Uh, boy, um, the head of Belarus uh, really um, was also a in top form and managed to uh, talk uh, Prigozhin down from this cliff he was on. He had nowhere to go. He had his tanks parked on the outskirts of Moscow. What's he going to do with them? He, he did um, his his uh, soldiers did shoot down. Two Russian, um, I don't know how many planes, but two Russian soldiers actually died. Uh, they got killed in uh, that shoot down. And so um, something really needs to happen there. But um, Russia is, as Alan was saying, they came out smelling like a rose. They're strong. They're stable. They addressed it. They got rid of it. 
And um, now they're just stronger than ever. And the West cannot understand. They haven't grokked that Putin is extremely popular and Russia totally has their act together. He's been carrying on this big war and half the people don't even realize that they're continuing with their own lives. Um, this is a war that always um, the Russians were going to win. And it's despicable how the neocons, I'll use that euphemism, uh, the neocons um, have just been um, stretching it out as much as they can. And then the clown who they call the president of the Ukraine um, is just um, despicable. There's no other word for my, I, I want to see them hang him up by his toes when all this is said and done. And the only way, it, the only place it can go now, um, because just to finish with um, the um, the so-called coup, is that those merc mercenaries, they were all conscripted into, they could either go home, do what they want, or they were conscripted into the uh, Russian military. So just more good fighting soldiers um, for the Russians. And nobody got too much hurt, although I think they should go back after Prigozhin because uh, two men died. You can't just let that pass. But now where it's at is back in the West's court. And about all they have left is the Samson option to just pull the big nuke trigger. There's nothing else there. They're, they they were just- That's really scary, Kat, what you just said. Yeah. Yeah, they have nothing left because they're big counteroffensive. I think they're having another one coming in July. What, you want to kill even more people? It was such a disaster that um, even the West couldn't even um, lie through their teeth. There was there was no there there. They're, they're terribly losing. And so they either admit they lose or they um, they they go for the big one, and they they don't want to admit they've lost. Um, so it's just a, a huge, monumental, epic war of chicken going on right now, and Russia is doing their best to have dignity and courage in the face of this unhinged lunacy coming from the neocons who are also taking over our country. Hey, Alan, question for you on the neocons. I have a question for you. What is their what's the profit motive? What are the neocons doing? What is the Biden administration doing? Where are they going with all this? Who's making money and who's not? I don't know who's making money. It would be an interesting thing. One one thing I wanted to mention before we we moved on from this, the you know it's, I'm not sure if it's a problem, but you know the the critique of the Russian the initial Russian move by the Wagner Group was correct. Um. They started out fine. The basic plan was correct. Uh, first 24 hours, they neutralized basically Ukraine's air defenses, air force communication systems. They put an air assault brigade onto the airport outside of Kiev, biggest one in the country, took it. They sent an armored column, which is then Belarus on maneuvers down from the southwest, from the, from the northwest rather, into, into Ukraine. 40-mile-long armored column they talked about. Got all videos showing them moving down. And then it stopped. It didn't get there. The armored column was supposed to get to the airport, relieve the, the airborne troops, the air assault troops, take Kiev, and that was it. It was to be over within two to four weeks. That was the plan. That was obviously the plan. And it didn't work. And it didn't work because whoever planned this didn't understand that you cannot advance only on a single road, on a single set of roads. And that's what they were doing. 
And I don't know what happened. I don't know if the Ukrainians blew the bridges, if something happened that there was some resistance they hadn't planned on, but you ended up with a 40-mile-long traffic jam of armored vehicles and mechanized vehicles and troops coming out of Belarus. And there was no way around it. There was no way, there was no way around it in strength. And we could filter things around it. And that's when the fighting heated up on the Northeast. That's when the air assault forces were, were wiped out, killed or captured. And the airport was recaptured by Ukrainian forces. And that's when this, this incredible high-tech version of the Western Front in World War I started in place. I mean, the Wagner Group is correct. You know, the, the, the Stavka had a good plan, but they didn't, and they're better than the old Soviet military used to be, but they didn't have the troops or the commanders on the ground with the sense to execute it. And that's, that's why that, there was peaceful. Someone said to me, well, Putin wanted a war of attrition. I said, it, no one in their right mind wants a war of attrition. If you're, if you're the attacker, if you're the attacker, if you're the defender, yeah, now maybe you do want a war of attrition. But if you're the attacker, under no circumstances do you want that. You want a war of maneuver and a quick end, period. And if it doesn't work, you got to do something else. Kat? Um, well, I, I kind of differ with that um, because people are like, why don't you just go in and take the whole thing? Um, because... You know, it's anathema to uh, the cold warriors um, in the West, but I believe he's humane. He didn't want to go in and kill fellow Slavic people. And he, he, where he erred was he continued to believe that once they saw that Russia totally had the military might, could have knocked them over like a flea in a week, but didn't want to harm any people. He left communications up. There was no rape and pillage. And so, on our side, it's like, oh, he screwed up. He did really bad. He didn't take it because they're expecting uh, to, to totally just destroy the enemy. Well, that wasn't where he was coming from. And he should have realized you can't trust the West. You can't trust the neocons is who you can't trust. Lie, steal, and cheat. Steal, lie, steal, and cheat. But when, when the Nord Stream um, happened, when the pipeline was blown up, all bets were off. He finally realized, even though he had started in 2014 trying, begging for peace, he finally realized after that, you can't take their word for it at all. And now the West is going to want um, peace talks. He doesn't believe them one iota. And he even gave them the whole benefit of the doubt all this time in fighting a humane war and not harming civilians. The statistics are really quite amazing. And if the West had just looked at the statistics alone after one year, it would have been obvious what was happening. And that is, I think it was something like 300,000 Ukrainian soldiers um, got killed. That's an extraordinary number that um, illuminates just how um, murderous this war has been, how awful. Um, but there were something like, I think, only 25,000 Russian soldiers, which clearly shows they had an extreme advantage. But the key uh, metric is that only about 10,000 civilians have died. Now, granted, a lot of them left, but still, it's my understanding that in these wars, it's usually kind of a one for one. The number of your soldiers that die is the number of civilians die. And the civilians is way, 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 way low. 
So he could have gone in and done an Iraq on him. Um, he could have he could have gone in and just uh, just wiped everything out. Mm-hmm. He has the military muscle, but he didn't want to. And so if he has any fault, it's because he's humane. Um, but the gloves are off, and um, he, he's he's not going to do what they don't understand. He's not going to do um, a peace treaty with them because he's been trying since 2014, and actually even before that. You he knows they're outright liars after this. Well, Kat, Kat, I, I agree with I agree I agree with most of what you said, but there's there's there are two problems, not with you, but with two problems with the general situation. One is that the humane way to end a war is to end it fast. Period. And the second thing is that if his plan at the beginning had been minimum force, then he never would have sent an air assault brigade into the airfield at Kiev and knowing that he couldn't could link up with them in time. Period. It would be like us taking a brigade of Marines or a brigade of paratroopers, dropping them out and then letting them die. Deliberately doing it, letting them die. Because that's what he did. I mean, the air assault troops in Russia have got that panache. They're, they're, the, they're the, the brave ones. They're the best they've got. Uh, they, they have a day of, of honoring a company, uh, an air assault company that held a hill against a couple of thousand Mujahideen swinging into Russia. They died to the last man. You know, and they just didn't give up. Whole company, they, and the and there's an airborne division, the 11th Airborne, 11th or 111th. I can't remember. I've, I lose track of Russian Russian unit designations. There's an air assault division that has a day honoring. Must be like 20, almost 30 years now, after that the event in the early 1990s, when this company just died to a man, you know, holding the top of the hill, and just wouldn't surrender. They, they would not. They would not throw throw an air assault brigade out there, unless they intended to link up with them. And if they linked up with them, that would mean that they would be. They would hold the airfield outside of Kiev. This is not a. This is not a strategy predicated on minimum force and prolonged war. This is a strategy predicated on victory and a quick surgical strike, which minimizes losses and ends the war. We have to remember that. Let's let's creep. I I thought it was honorable of him to want to do a humane war and then have them settle it, negotiate immediately. And that is what Zelensky was doing. And March, then when they were going to talk, see, we're obviously so much more powerful. Let's talk. Zelensky went to talk with him. And then who who, uh, flies in, parachutes in? Boris Johnson. And then who do we see? We see a string of people from the West, from the U.S. going and basically said, no, no way, Zelensky, you're not doing this. We're going to keep it going. And so Zelensky would have stopped when he saw, oh, my God, we, even him being nice, we can't go up against him. It was the West coming in. And I think um, um, Putin did not really realize the degree that the West was all in. He was just dealing with the proxy. Yeah, it's incredible how, how powerful the West is influencing themselves and, and flexing themselves to try to influence what's happening over here. Alan, I'll give you a few more words before we end this topic. What is what is the the United States position on this going forward? Where are they going with this at this moment? Give me a few words. <laughs> you don't have words. <laughs> I just, I, 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 you know, it's, it's you know, it's, it's sort of like if you're looking at American strategy. I, I'm using the term with a lowercase s. You know, it's sort of like utter confusion theory. Um, we have no strategy. We have none. At least we don't have any that I can discern, um, except in the sense that that Cat described it. 
we're using we're using Ukraine as a diversion from what's happening within the United States and what's happening to what passes for the leadership of the United States, which is basically a crime family. And I hate to say that because there are decent crime families like Cosa Nostra. Cat, deferring to you again on Cosa Nostra. Uh, by the way, my, my, I mean, my, that's, my, that's it. It's, it's, my it's father's a, side, I'm Sicilian, so... Oh, excuse I'm me. Uh, yeah, I'm, I love I Sicilians. I love all yeah. Sicilians. <laughs> I love Pizza Sicilian Palermo. pizza. <laughs> no, but very seriously, it's it's um, it's it's not it's not unusual for people to use a war to distract attention from domestic problems. Uh, more than a few people have suggested that Thatcher took the war on the Falcons as a way of distracting British attention from a very dismal economic situation at home. And it's, so, and, and it's done. People do these sorts of things. Uh, but what we're, what's really strange here is that the, the conflict in Ukraine seems to be almost non-strategic as far as the United States is concerned. That the continued prosecution of the war seems to be an end in itself not 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 the means to another end except in the sense that as long as the war is going on attention can be focused not should be focused but can be focused away from american domestic affairs and we can go ahead to the 2024 charade uh as we're going to do Well, I would just like to finish with that is that all of that is true, but as we keep going levels and levels up or deeper is that nobody can, it it doesn't make any sense. Nobody can make sense of this war. Why are you sending just shovelfuls of money into that laundering machine to that uh, Jewish president? And then it goes out to who, who's really, it's coming from us being shoveled in the three main people who are doing the policy. They're all three Jewish Sullivan, um, uh, Victoria Newland and Blinken. This is a Jewish war. And the reason it's irrational is because it's unhinged because this really goes back to Putin kicking the Jewish billionaires out and, and kicking, kicking basically the Jews who in the, in, during the um, 1990s, when the wall came down, which was their machinations, they went in and they just, took out all the copper wiring, just left Russia in the 90s devastated. That was a Jewish effort. And the Jews go back to a hatred of Russia, going back to at least 1000 AD when the Rus went into the Khazarian region and kicked them out and into the Pale of Settlement. They have ancient memories, never forgive, never forget. They have revenge on their mind. That's why there's no logic to this. There's no military strategic logic that people keep trying to apply to this. There is none because we're dealing with psychopathic, unhinged, revengeful people who have hijacked our country and have all the, all of our money and are just shoving it in. It's, it's their money laundering machine. It's also their hate, vengeful, um, a, a vendetta that's going on. It makes no sense. Kat, you, 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 you really ought to be more, more respectful of decent psychopaths. <laughs> <laughs> on that note i, I, I want to uh, segue to something else now alan you re- recently wrote an article called uh, feminine dystopia i thought we can get into it because i uh, i think we can use uh cat uh, to give us a little fight here and, and, and versus alan uh, can you tell me a little bit about your feminine dystopia article first and let cat uh, comment on it well 
other than it's cost me, most of my female friends produced threats on my life and had the National Organization of Women declare me an enemy of the state. There's not been any feedback from it. No, it was, it was just something that there, there was, it was actually an interesting thing. I, I, I noticed this just sort of in passing, you know, that as the, uh, as I began the piece saying, you know, that as the economic independence and political activism of women increased, all of the institutions of, of Western society and culture began to fragment. And, you know, there are actually two things were taking place though. One was that, one was the increase in economic independence and political activism and participation. And the second was a, an almost unbelievable propaganda effort from the entertain, Western entertainment media, the Western advertising conglomerates, all of them Jewish-owned, uh, on women in the West, particularly white women, which is mostly the same thing, um, basically pushing them, I'm not saying if I would say radicalizing them, but that's what the effect was. Now, you could have had the first without the second, and I don't think you would have had the, the dementia that's, that's appeared in the, the youngest group, under 30 college women, college-educated women, unmarried women, all within that group, who split something between seven to three and eight to two in favor of the Democrats in all of the dementia of their policy in 2022. That's an overwhelming statistic, and it's not matched by other statistics. Um, but seeing that, that they were they were both both active and victims. And I, I've, I've realized that looking at it very carefully. That it it just it wasn't just their independence and just their activism, it was their victimization as well. That they were the chosen target of the people, the same people who have pushed these wars, pushed this propaganda, and it hit. It took root, and it took about four generations to do it. I mean, Cat, for example, is probably a very good example of a feminist as she describes it, and I think it's a perfectly reasonable feminist. Uh, Helen Bynisky, generation younger, tough, reasonable, sensible, but drop, drop another generation, and that starts to fray. And I think it's, it's because of the, the combination of independence and victimization which is precisely what has happened in the form, what, what happened to women here in the West is what happened to the colonies. They got their independence without experience and were subject to propaganda and became victims and became the new victims. I'd say something like that. Kat, over to you. you I mean, you have a very different view of a lot of this stuff and I'd like to hear it. Yeah. Uh I will have to admit I was really um, disturbed by Alan's article um, on on two levels. Um, one, just the the, the sheer um, pummeling that he did of women with a broad brushstroke, and two, I felt that there really was not a lot of um, scholarship or rigor underneath it. 
Um, I'm e- extremely um, steeped in feminism. I I consider myself a feminist, but I call myself an eco-feminist. I was never a radical feminist or a liberal feminist, for those who know what splitting those hairs mean. Would you describe but, eco-feminist? Uh, would you describe okay. what, you, what you mean by eco-feminist? Because that, that would be something that I would like to hear, and I think others would too. Okay, well, let me just kind of talk about the taxonomy of it a bit, is that um, first wave of feminism back to um, the 1800s, um, that that was more of a liberal feminism, just uh, we want our rights. And so then when we get to second wave feminism, which would have been um, the 70s, late 60s, 70s, um, kind of even into the 80s, that is... A, classic liberal feminism about civil rights. Um, and then that started having splits into radical feminism. Radical feminism doesn't want your rights. It's like, we don't want a piece of your uh, rotten stinking pie. We just, we want to be separatists. Um, there was a lot of that. So I never connected to really radical feminists, um, separatism, um, or to um, liberal feminism. And so for me, um, what ecofeminism meant, um, I was one of the leading grassroots activists for ecofeminism. It was very much an academy thing. Um, but it, it combines, um, I, I, I think some of the differences between regular feminism is that it brings in a spiritual approach as well as, um, an ecological approach. And the classic, um, phrase for ecofeminism um, an understanding of it is the domination of women and the domination of nature are fundamentally connected. So who's doing that? Actually, the Say deeper I got. Say that again. Say that again. The domination of women and the domination of nature are fundamentally connected. Um, and so for the past 5,000 years. Domination of nature by whom? I, I'm just trying well, to understand for the, this. For the past 5,000 years, we have had a male-dominated patriarchy. And for thousands of centuries before that, it was more female-oriented and nature-based. And and I, and the important thing to understand is this is not a women's thing or a men's thing. It, it really isn't. Um, I, I, don't, I don't see it bifurcated like that. Men could be, um, it, it has kind of to do with right brain, left brain, left brain meaning more um, uh, emotional, spiritual, creative, right brain, meaning more analytical and rational. Now, these are broad stereotypes, and we have all of those within us. But the fact remains that for the past 5,000 years, our society has not been um, a kind of goddess matriarchy that existed for thousands of centuries in certain parts of the world. And I'm but not saying no it was right or wrong. What? There's no evidence oh, there's for those thousands of centuries. There's massive evidence. There's massive evidence. Um, if you haven't looked into it, then there is none, but there's massive evidence. Yes. And in any event, the last 5,000 years have been male dominated. And I'm not saying that that's, it's not necessarily good or bad, but in the public sphere, we have not had women in the public sphere. And, um, you don't want to be out of balance. You want balance. I believe, well, one of the um, bywords that I have said is for a spiritual politic and a political spirituality. People who are political don't really get 
the spiritual and the people who are spiritual don't understand the political. And we need both left brain and right brain working together, just as we need our society in balance. And what we have gotten when there's too much of something, I, I think there may have been too much female energy. When there's too much something, life, nature and life always goes back to a, a stasis and equilibrium. And after 5,000 years of uh, a male mindset, patriarchal mindset, um, it's what we have is a toxic masculinity. And, but we also have a toxic feminine. What we don't want is toxic of either. We want the best of both and leave the rot of both behind. The problem when we see women in all these places, um, I liked Alan's uh, picture of the European defense ministers and they're all women. But wait a moment. They're male bots. They are women now we have not seen a positive non-toxic female type organization all the organizations that women are stepping into are basically male structured for years and years decades if not centuries have been male created and we've gotten a lot of good from that i'm not saying it's all bad but things reach a point where I think if we had had more balance, we wouldn't have seen so much war. We wouldn't have seen so much poverty um, if it's balanced. And I think an imbalance with women is just as bad, but we haven't seen that for the last 5,000 years. So as an eco-feminist, the planet is out of balance. We need Mother Earth to be back in balance, more of a sacredness of nature and more of a respect for women. And I think women... One of Alan's big things was get women out of politics, out of um, law. And I'm like, no, we need them in there, but not male bots, M-A-L-E-B-O-T-S. That is females who have warped themselves as um, uh, uh, square pegs trying to fit into round holes. They, they're just trying to emulate male culture, which is what our law and politics, it's, it's all based on that. So now we're getting perverted, um, per, perverted versions of women in positions that have been male created for years and years, if not centuries. And then do, are they trying to change it to be more female or are they just adapting themselves and wearing big shouldered suits and they'll do it just as well as men? That's perverse. That's toxic femaleness, which I don't want to see. And I think um, Alan had a good kernel there with um, talking about the young women now who have gone through years of indoctrination. And I liked how he said they're both victim and they're leading this, this um, uh, Karen kind of, um, uh, feminist fascism, if you will. I am opposed to that. But I think we have to look at the bigger picture. Who's really calling the shots, especially now, um, now that they, they're using uh, women's liberation, so to speak, to just tear down all of society. So taking, that's what all these color revolutions are. They take the authentic grassroots desire for liberation, for betterment for all, not just one kind of so-called oppressed group. And then they take this color, these color revolutions, they take that and co-opt it and pervert it. And that's where we're at right now. So I agree that half these women in there, I can't even connect with, they don't care about nature. They don't really care about the environment. They don't have a spiritual soul. And, um, 
and, and they want the status quo of what is. So they're ready to go along to get along. And so what I would like to see is um, women's spaces start up that, that could use men and women. Right now, our, our species is so screwed up. We don't even know what's there. So you got people like Kevin Barrett saying, let's go back to the way it was. You know, women covered, <laughs> women stuck in the home. No, we need women's voices out there. We have, But not the toxic women, not the ones who have been programmed by this whole political identity, but who hasn't been. Now they're going after uh, um, the, the whole trans thing. And it's not just women doing that. Women may be at, at the front end, women are like the, the street drug dealer. Let's go after the kingpins who are, who are, who are doing all of this. So I, I, I was just, even the title of um, Alan's piece, instead of saying um, feminist dystopia, it, it, to say feminine, to me, uh, that that was even beyond a kind of misogyny. I thought it was misanthropic because it undermines the human ability to connect as people. There are more than enough men who are probably more feminist than most of the so-called feminists there. And there are so many women now who are outmanning men. That's not what I want. We need positive, functional, beautiful, loving men and women working together in new kinds of spaces, not trying to put women into round pegs and square spaces of men's spaces. So um, I think that's... uh, yeah, how do we get out of it? Because these people running it, the Frankfurt School political identity seem to have a total control over it. So Kevin Barrett is like, well, let's go, and, and even Dugan, let's go extreme traditional. Well, I don't think I want to see any genital mutilation. We're already seeing enough of that female genital mutilation. I don't want to be uh, have to wear be covered. Um, I, I like my freedom and I've never, ever wanted children ever. I don't have a maternal bone in my body unless it's for puppies and dogs that I love. I, I don't want kids. Cats and I have kittens no- at that. Cats and kittens. I don't want you to be a catist. <laughs> uh, that, that, that's that's a lively discussion from both of you. Holy cow. Holy chicken. Holy chicken. Yeah. Also, you can't put the toothpaste back into the tube. I don't want to go into the home. That doesn't interest me at all. I'd be a terrible mother. I don't want to do that. And why can't we go beyond, take the best of both and go beyond and understand errors have been made, but just to say, banish women from politics. We need good women in politics more than ever. Mm. Alan, you got the last word on this issue. What do, you, what do you think about uh, the position of Cat McGuire there? Well, um, I think it's the sort of thing we can agree to disagree. But I think there's, um, you know, as, as I as I was talking to Kevin about this for a couple of, he he called me and had me had me do an interview. I think the day after the articles came out, and I said, you know, the most important thing. Even if we we accept my position on this, is that there has to be a way of of filtering the system so that really good people, and Kat and I have def, different definitions, I'm sure, of what would be good people. Um, I mean, uh, you know, kind, loving, sensitive to nature is is fine in a in a theoretical sense, and it looks great in a poem and a novel. But I'm not sure kind, loving people are the sort of things, people who would have stood at Thermopylae, you know, and done that and been willing to die to the last man. Women don't do that. They don't do it at all. 
they don't not ever because we ever. don't start the wars not, we not, don't start uh, well wars. women women in charge the women who have been in charge when they have been the rulers whether it be uh Eleanor of Aquitaine or Elizabeth I of England or Maria Theresa of Austria or Catherine the Great of Russia haven't been one shit different from the men who have been their counterparts. Not one, not a scrap. Because they're not, in male not environment. Anything, not anything at all. But the thing they're of it male is, the, there, there needs to be some kind of a way of filtering good people, good women, so they can get into the system without letting what is really a gullible and irresponsible majority to have a say in it, because that's what happened. That's when that side of the brain takes over, the emotional side of the brain. And that is absolutely the last thing any country needs running its politics, running its economy, and running its military. You well, do not need that. You do not need that. No one needs it. What, the one who needs it is the one who's willing to destroy yourself. Well, Alan, that's a, we're obviously going to all just agree to disagree on this issue, but a very lively discussion. I, I want to leave you because we only got about uh, 10 minutes left on our conversation. Right now in the United States, we have an issue with Donald Trump. He has been uh, 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 indicted for uh, U.S. government documents. Um, now they're releasing audio of him uh, saying that he had classified documents and he's laughing with some people on, on the, uh, in his office talking about it. Um, you, you, you said something, Kat, about Merrick Garland. You think this is a Merrick Garland issue, not a Donald Trump issue. Kat, can you speak to that, please? Not solely Merrick Garland, but um, yeah, if we look at um, the Hunter Biden thing, for example, there were three key decision makers who could have stopped that in the butt and really uh, got um, Hunter Biden. The first one was Barr. Um, Barr, as attorney general during um, Trump's time, could have. Uh, said, wait a minute, we're going after this guy. The second one is that guy, uh, Weiss. I mean, he was the one who's led this, um, the actual investigation, the FBI looking into it. And then the third one now we have um, Garland. All three of those are Jews. So all three, those were the key choke points where they could have gone after Hunter Biden, but it's, uh, it, 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 the fix is in. Um, Trump and the J6ers are having to do above and beyond absurd um, running through hoops and and being uh, persecuted. Meanwhile, they have crackhead. Uh, somebody just sent me this video today that it, it, it was just shocking that came off Hunter Biden's laptop. It, I, I can't even express words for how hideous it was of what the father was doing. So this whole thing really is to protect the father. He has to love his son. He doesn't care about his son. It's his ass that's on the um, that's going to go down. And they have to keep him in because he's the perfect puppet. So they have a, almost a blank slate of an idiot that they have to, they don't even try to cover it up anymore. They let him be as stupid as he wants to be. And he can because they're laughing at us because they have virtually total control over this right now. And at each choke point, I believe that the people who have occupied our country right now, um, the neocons and the neoliberals are purposefully laughing and continuing to make it happen and heightening it the worst um, um, pain going out to those who disagree with them and then anything and everything for what they want. It's um, we're living in truly in 1984. Alan. Uh, in this case, I think that cat actually understates it. I mean, really it's uh, it's, it's an appalling situation. Uh, 
what has happened to the people in uh, the J6 of the, you know, non-insurrection, you know, it was total violation of their constitutional rights, total violation of due process, any, any interpretation of due process in, in any country in the West, uh, not under a, not under a total dictatorship. Um, and they're doing this and they're going to continue to do it for the next year and a half, two years. They're going to keep Trump under indictment. And, you know, I am not a never Trumper, but I am never pro Trump. I don't, I don't like him. I think he's a weak person, a narcissist. I described him once as a Mussolini with hair. And then I apologized to the ghost of Mussolini, uh, who at least was a brave soldier in the first world war. Um, you know, that article that, that Kevin, I think it was Kevin put it up. And we, when he was, we were talking about it, and, and you put it up also. This went on by Ann Coulter, you know, with, you know, the, the inconsequential president. And it took the entire list of, um, of Trump's actions on the border wall dispute, you know, including the first two years when the Republicans held both houses of the Congress. An utterly, a person who is utterly out of his depth. And that's true. But that doesn't make what the, what the Democrats are doing right. I mean, the Democrats are doing, to call it a crime family, uh, insults decent crime families, really. I mean, it's just, it's the most appalling combination of people in that family at the top that you can possibly imagine. Uh, it makes the worst you would find in Renaissance Italy, the very worst you would find in Renaissance Italy, the Borgias look pretty good really makes them look pretty good. You know, it just, it, I, I think of, and I, I described it this way, you know, you, you have an incestuous, semi-senile pedophile as president of the United States. His son, the smartest man he knew, to say that he disgusts me is an understatement. I mean, it, it's absolutely true. If, if he tripped and fell off a cliff, it would be like flushing a stopped-up toilet. And that would be both of them, really. You know, it, it's Pat, and that's right. He he will be if unless he physically dies or is kept is kept on life support like Brezhnev in his final year, he will be the next president of reelected as president. There's no question at all about it. If we bother having an election at all, Cat, if we bother having Biden an election at all, are you saying Biden will be again? Oh, of course, and then as soon as he's out. Um, There'll be a new vice president. I think that the discussion about Newsom of California going in, probably true. He's the, he's the next donated one. And then as soon as, as he's vice president, Biden will go. I mean, it's by whatever means. He may just be removed on the, the 25th Amendment. He may resign. He may retire. He may fall over some girl and drop dead. Who knows? And then Newsom will move up to the presidency, natural point of succession. They'll have another vice president, probably Mike Obama. Before I let you guys sorry, both Michelle go, Obama. <laughs> Forgive before me. Before I let you guys both go, we got only a minute I, I left. <laughs> Just a few minutes left. Cat, uh, Donald Trump, where does he end up in the next couple of years? Is he going to be president of the United States or in jail or in, was it some other country? What's going to happen here? Well, I hope he recuses himself or is somehow taken out because at this point, um, now that he has his, his experience, well, sorry, buddy, you had your chance. Um, right now, he's just a real um, a drag 
on us. There are a lot of people who, who are actually going towards him now because of, the, um, of how they're treating him. But he's, n- he's not a good president. He never was presidential material. And um, I, I'm hoping that somehow he's taken out of the picture in a good way. Uh, he gets sick or something. Because the one, I, I, well, first of all, at the highest levels, yes, is I agree with Alan. This is just all a, a, a game that they're playing and they're going to put their person in. But um, I would like to see um, Bobby Kennedy. Um, I, I have a lot of issues with him, especially his love fest for um, Israel. But that's an interesting angle, too. Um, it's worth reading Kevin Barrett's latest on that. It's very, very clever. But um, um, I think they're going the Democrats are not going to get let Bobby in. And I hope he can do um, run independent. And I hope he wins. But in terms of who they're going to run, I think they're going to have to um, pull uh, Biden aside. He's if they really want to go up against the Kennedy juggernaut, they just can't cut it anymore and they have them in a basement and they're going to win. And so I have long said that I think they're going to run Michelle Obama and have Gavin Newsom be her um, Dick Cheney. But I'm beginning to think now um, of the strong possibility that he might just run as president, but he, he you can't have a white guy uh, running as president if you're a Democrat. So um, Michelle is perhaps vice president, some variation thereof, but also bear in mind, every single presidential um, candidate, I think from Carter to uh, um, Clinton to Obama, have all made appearances at Bilderberg and one, all, all of these Democrats have. Guess who was at Bilderberg this last time? Stacey Abrams, black woman. <laughs> it would certainly be a weighty, it would certainly be a weighty addition to the Democratic ticket. <laughs> okay, fair enough, Alan. So, what say you about t- Trump? Is he going to end up in jail in two years, or is he going to be president of the United States? Where is he going to be? It doesn't matter. I mean, it simply it, doesn't, it, it simply doesn't matter. It simply doesn't matter. I mean, it, it's very, very clear that um, that elections have less meaning in the United States now than they did in Stalin's Soviet Union. They really, they really don't mean anything. Um, I remember. I'm still old enough to remember, you know, as a as a boy in, in junior high school the 1956 conventions for both the Republicans and the Democrats, these were your classics, not only smoke-filled rooms, but smoke-filled convention floors, multiple votes on the floors, not for Eisenhower, of course, that was was a shoe-in. Eisenhower would have won on either ticket, but for the Democrats, you know, Stevenson, Kefauver, a couple of others, they were fighting it out for votes right down to the end. And that mattered. I mean, the primaries were not controlling. Now primaries are controlling, and that's where the even more corrupt state political machines can take over. We saw that with the Iowa state primary for the Democrats, you know, five years ago. That was that was a, a foreplay, forgive my phrase, but that was a foreplay of fore, foreshadowing the Democrat National Convention. That was exactly what it was, and it also was a foreshadowing of the 2020 election. Shifting it to South Carolina won't change anything. Won't change anything in the slightest. Trump may be Trump may be running for president, but if he's under indictment, I don't think he can. And they're going to keep him under indictment, whether or not there's a trial, whether or not there's a conviction. There doesn't have to be. Just having him indicted in on trial is sufficient to take him out of the running. 
Gotcha. On that note, oh, go ahead. Sorry, Kat, you want to say something real quick? Yeah, the main thing is above and beyond the fact totems, what's BlackRock doing? BlackRock is the 800-pound gorilla in this room, and they're just now entering into Bitcoin, and things are shaken up. And I want to thank you for that because the next podcast, we're going to have to talk about Bitcoin and what's happening with BlackRock because there's something really fishy going on and we want to do an investigation on that. So the next time I have you guys on, I want to talk about Bitcoin. Is that okay with you guys? I've been following it very closely. Yeah. I think it's an, oh, it's an interesting know, you issue. You remember, by the way, that just, just to note that Sam Bankman-Fried apparently seems to be free. Uh, most of the major charges against him are dropped. I guess oh, a couple billion dollars that. given to Democrat candidates matters. Uh-oh. <laughs> on that note, I want to say thank you to Dr. Alan Sabrowski for being on VT Radio once again. To the great Kat McGuire, the Sicilian from, are you, are you in Brooklyn? Where are you right now? New York City in Hell's Kitchen. Hell's Kitchen. There you go. What Kat McGuire, one. thank you so what much. Be, what an appropriate one. <laughs> yeah, right. hell, Kat. <laughs> thank you guys so much for appearing on VT Radio. And, and to our listeners out there, don't forget to support Alan Sabrowski and Kat McGuire. Alan, what you got working on this week? Tell our fans and, and people all over the world, please. Uh, well, this one is going to be, this piece is, I'm not quite sure of the title. It's Distributed Justice. It's the weaponization of the American justice system and the, and the failure of the entire system. Gotcha. And, Kat, and, the, what's and the, you? the one ap- the one after that, which is going to be, I think it'll go off to you guys on um, on Monday. Um, manifesto for the militia. Okay. And Kat, what, what do you got? Go to, what's cooking in Hell's Kitchen? Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> Sicilians are cooking. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Sazich, what's going on over there? This Saturday, um, I'm going to be on False Flag Weekly News as guest host with Kevin Barrett. Perfect. Looking forward to that. All right, get listeners, everybody check out Kat on the uh, Kevin Barrett show, the False Flag News. And uh, of course, if you, if you like this radio show and you support VT Foreign Policy, don't forget to reach out to us. Buymeacupofcoffee.com. It's on our website. Please donate and support our radio show and become a member. It really means a lot. Obviously, we don't get mainstream advertisers on our show. Our, show because of the content that we're having so it's really important that you support what we're doing and on that note i want to wish you guys a fantastic day thanks Thank very you. much Kat, okay, John, very good to see you guys again peace bye if you enjoyed this presentation hit the like button now also share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss an episode vt approves this message